Many moons ago, when the world was young and heroes walked the earth, there was born the History Podcast. And in this world, there was the Beeb. There was Lars Brownworth and a bloke called Mike Duncan, and we heard Mike and knew he was good. And so was spawned a new generation, wherein I was inspired by Robin Pearson, who picked up the mantle of the Roman Empire in Byzantium. Robin, I'm glad to say, is still going strong, is still producing magnificent history and entertainment, and here is a message from him. Hello everyone, this is Robin Pearson from the History of Byzantium podcast. It seems like you enjoy your history recounted to you by an erudite, funny Englishman. Well, I am also an Englishman. And if you like a bit of Roman history, then come join me for a thousand-year epic of incredible highs and devastating lows. Check out The History of Byzantium wherever you get your podcasts, or go to thehistoryofbyzantium.com. For now, back to David. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hello everyone and welcome to the History of England, episode 137, The Battle of Shrewsbury. Okay, everyone, really sorry I've been away for so long. I've missed you. But I thought I'd let you know that I have, incidentally, just brought a second-hand copy of a book called The Safeguard of the Sea by N.A.M. Rogers, part of his series of books on the history of the British Navy. It is quite superb. It's also not an audible, but hey, but I heartily recommend the book. Though it did make me laugh a bit yesterday, because this is a man who knows his boats and the forgotten art of sailing boats to boot, and he may not quite understand that the rest of us may not have the same level of knowledge. So here's a little sample for you. All seagoing ships seem to have been fitted with a spar known as a loof to boom out the weather tack. Hmm. I mean, I understand each word on its own. It's just this specific configuration with all of them working together I'm having a problem with. But seriously, I recommend it to you. And at some point, probably during Henry V and his reconstruction of the Navy, there'll be more about ships on the way. So last time we left England in the grip of civil war. The Percys have raised the banner of defiance and rebellion, invoked the name of Richard and marched to the Welsh borders. While we don't know for certain if there was some arrangement with Glyndwr, it seems pretty likely. But the Percys also wanted to stop Henry teaming up with his son. In that they'd failed. Henry, as he'd done for the Epiphany Rising, had acted decisively and got to Shrewsbury before them. It meant both that he teamed up with the Earl of Stafford and with his son, the Prince Henry. It also meant that Glyndwr would not have the time to get an army up to support Hotspur 
and influence events. Stymied by the closed gates of Shrewsbury, the Percys retired to Berwick Field outside the town. We've heard something of the leader of this army, Harry Hotspur, but he had two lieutenants with him who would have a big influence on events. One of them was the Earl of Douglas. He came from a long line of Scottish opponents to the power of the English from the Douglas family and was the man recently defeated in his Sunday best armour by the Percys at Homelden Hill. OK, so what, I hear you ask, is he doing in Percy's army now if he's just been beaten up by them? Well, given that Henry IV had insisted that all Scottish hostages became his property, effectively, rather than Percy being able to charge a ransom, young Percy saw no reason to give him up. So, why not have him throw his hat into the ring of this rebellion? He does speak to the very ambiguous relationship between the families of the borders. These families fought each other tooth and nail, but at the same time they had close links and shared experiences. So sometimes it was better the devil you knew, rather than some outsider from far off London town. So, meanwhile, the head of the family, incidentally Henry Percy, the Earl of Northumberland, was still back in Northumberland doing his thing. So the other lieutenant with Hotspur was his grizzled uncle, Thomas Percy, the Earl of Worcester. Thomas was 60 years old, which may or may not be grizzled these days, but let me tell you, qualified as grizzled in 1403. He'd served under the old guard, the Black Prince in particular, in the war with France, so he was an experienced, hardened soldier. He knew the marches of Wales like the back of his hands, since his lands were based down there, rather than up north with the other purses. He'd been with Richard II in Ireland in 1399, acting as his steward, but when Richard ran for Conwy, Thomas wasn't with him. He'd followed his family. He'd broken his steward's rod in front of the king, and generously been allowed to leave by Richard. So he's a tough, pretty uncompromising bloke. Meanwhile, the king also had his allies. His son, of course, now 17, and gaining experience in the art of war in the southern marches against Glyndor. Edmund, the young Earl of Stafford, 25 years old, had brought his tenants to join Henry, and by so doing had made the two forces pretty much roughly equal, probably at about 14,000 men each. And then a Scottish lord, a chap called George, the Earl of Dunbar and March, brought a few men with him, but mainly brought a history of military skill that was the equal of any warrior alive. To give you a bit more background on that, over the last 50 years, Scotland had been brimming with confidence. Confidence that they could force confirmation of their permanent independence from the English by aggression. The result was a constant stream of raids, whether under truce or not, and the old alliance, Scotland and France versus England. George of Dunbar was the most effective tool in this war, on the Scottish side. In his youth, the English controlled many of his lands, Berwickshire and Annandale. But in the 1370s and 1380s, he took them back. By 1384, many of the English border lords were paying tribute to keep Dunbar off their land, reflecting that locally the Scottish cause was in the ascendant. In 1384, 5 and 8, Dunbar was heavily involved in his king, Robert II, attack into England. So basically the message is, this guy's credentials for bashing the Sassanacs were second to none. He'd killed more Englishmen than a deep-fried Mars bar, was undefeated in battle, and by right should be a Scottish hero. But in fact, he's not. In fact, he's pretty much completely unknown. 
and the reason for this were his career choices and the Earl of Douglas just across the way. The Douglas and Dunbar family were passionate and fierce rivals for power in Scotland. In 1402, Dunbar lost out in the marriage war. He appealed to Henry in England and defected to the English, and it turned out not to be a good decision for the long-term health of his family. His lands in Annandale were taken by Douglas. But it did put the 67-year-old warrior at Henry's side for the Battle of Shrewsbury, on the opposing side to his arch-enemy Douglas. OK, so back to the action. On the morning of the 21st of July, Henry, Dunbar and Stafford led their army from Shrewsbury to Berwick Field, just outside. Ahead of them, Hotspur, Worcester and Douglas had chosen the top of a low rise to dig themselves in and wait for the king. Now, Henry was prepared to do his best to avoid a battle. We've seen that he's inclined to avoid brutality if he can avoid it. And looking at all those Cheshire archers dug into a strong defensive position at the top of a hill would, I imagine, have encouraged a deep and fervent desire for peace. So he sent the abbot of Shrewsbury up the hill to talk to Hotspur. All morning the talks went on. Hotspur, despite the heat in his spurs, by the sound of things was really keen to find some sort of accommodation, if at all possible. And you can see his point. He had no desire to kill the king, necessarily, just to have him do his bidding civil war was a nasty affair. No scope for the glory, chivalry and nice fat ransoms of foreign wars. You either won or ended up at the end of a traitor's knife. So he sent his uncle Worcester to do the talking. Now at this point the attitude of Worcester made a massive difference. Old Worcester saw no point in this whatsoever. As far as his grizzled view was concerned, the grizzled Percy family had made its grizzled decision. Although it would have been nice if they'd been able to hook up with Glyndua, nonetheless they had Henry staring up at their very best Cheshire archers, just like a bunch of French knights at Cressy. Time to get it on. So although Henry made a number of concessions, or apparently so at least, Worcester was having none of it. Henry begged him to have the purses put themselves at his grace, and that if they did, everything would be fine. "'I do not trust your grace,' growled Worcester. Then on you lies the responsibility for the blood that will be shed this day, replied Henry sadly. Rather shockingly, Worcester then went back to Hotspur and gave an out-and-out, honest-to-goodness, no-poo, cotton-picking fib. Straight up. There's no deal, nephew, he said. It's fight or flight. Now Worcester, to my mind, had a point, although, of course, lying is wrong. Listeners, lying is wrong. The purses could well have 5,000 Cheshire archers among their army. That had been enough to cut the flower of French chivalry to ribbons and bring the richest kingdom to its knees. Henry faced a long slog uphill into the teeth of the arrow storm. His own arrows, meanwhile, would shoot back, but they would be firing uphill at an entrenched position behind shields. Their fire would be far less effective. But Dunbar and Henry realised there was nothing for it, no plan B. Henry put his son Prince Henry in charge of the left flank and gave the honour of commanding the vanguard, the men who would have to brave the firestorm, to Stafford. Thanks, boss, thought Stafford. A knight called Walter Blount held the standard. Henry approached a few of his most faithful knights and got them to wear his colours because, hated or loathe it, the archers would look for him and aim at him. Amazingly, several of these people apparently said yes. Why would he do that? Look, King, you get the salary, you wear the colours. But of course, 
These were finer times, when there was honour in the world, when men were men, and you know the rest about furry creatures. Anyway, then it was all forward. It must have been absolutely terrifying. Above them, the Cheshire archers selected so-called flight arrows with elongated shafts for long distance. They drew their bows so fast that they managed to keep six arrows in the air at any one time, and according to a contemporary account, they shot so fast that the sun, which at that time was clear and bright, then lost its brightness so thick were the arrows. Given that we're almost in Wales, we have to question the authenticity of the report, since clearly it must have been raining, but we can let that pass. Around the King's army, the veterans would have warned the young'uns to keep their heads down. Looking up was an invitation to death. Henry and his army trudged up towards the rebels. Henry's men shot back, but predictably with much less impact. And again our account records the appalling cost. In Henry's ranks, men fell, quote, as fast as leaves fall in autumn after the hoarfrost. As they got closer, the fire got even more murderous. The Cheshire archers swapped to sheaf arrows, shorter arrows with a heavier head for punching through armour. Below them, the wounded and newly blinded crawled to the rear, while the billmen and foot soldiers that survived kept stubbornly moving forward, shouting their defiance at the enemy ahead and praying for the storm to stop. The one problem with arrows is that eventually, of course, they run out. That's fine, bound to happen, which means that there are a bunch of happy blokes called retrievers, whose job it is to run forward and get some arrows back after your enemy has run away. But at this point, Stafford and his men have not run away. So entered the Earl of Douglas. While the archers grabbed their swords, Douglas ordered the line forward and slammed into Stafford and his dazed vanguard, and so the fighting turned general hand-to-hand dust and screams and blood. And then Stafford himself was cut down, and the vanguard ran. As they ran, the Cheshire archers began to retrieve arrows and began to fire again. So cometh the hour and that sort of thing. Time and courage was of the essence. There was no time to allow those archers to reform a line, gather another vast store of arrows and give the main body of Henry's army more of the same. In fact, you have to suspect that no one gave Stafford and his vanguard a snowball's chance in hell anyway. They were essentially arrow fodder there to draw the sting of the Cheshire archers before the main event. So Henry's trumpet sounded, and forward they marched, Henry, Blount and Dunbar side by side, nervous men in the king's livery around him, checking their life assurance policies for a definition of force majeure. Meanwhile, Henry sent the order to his son on the left to counterattack to boot. Henry's personal fighting prowess stood him in good stead. According to a French chronicler, quote, King Henry was more concerned in this matter than any man. Disturbed by the defeat of his vanguard, with a loud voice began to exhort his men to do well, and throwing himself into the battle did many a fine feat of arms, so that on both sides he was said to be the most valiant knight. And it is said Forstetta, on that day, with his own hand, he slew thirty of his enemies. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. 
Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Meanwhile, on the left, things started desperately for young Prince Henry. As he lifted his visor, an arrow took him straight in the face, just below the eye, sinking through skin and flesh and into the bone of the prince's skull. Six inches deep, apparently, people. Six inches deep. We're going to have to assume that it must have been to some degree been spent or a glancing blow or took some deflection from a helmet to explain why Henry wasn't toast as a result. But nonetheless, Henry was urged to retire from the field. He showed his mettle. He refused, returned to the battle, and so we get our first measure of the war leader Henry will become. And so the counterattack went on. It raises an interesting point. Like Henry IV, the famous image that survives of Henry V comes from the late 16th century, but in Henry V's case, may be based on a contemporary surviving picture. So it shows Henry V in profile, never face on. The surgeon who took the arrow out gave a description of what he did, and I think it might give a suggestion of why his picture is in profile, where other portraits of the same time are face-on. So this chap's name, the guy who took the arrow out, was Bradmore. And I'm going to tell you a little bit about the removal of arrows from royal faces. So first of all, he cut through the prince's face to the depth of the wound. Let me just say that one more time. First of all, he cut through the prince's face to the depth of the wound. Then he applied tongs he'd designed specially for the purpose. Here we go. Good luck keeping the lunch down. I put these tongs in at an angle, in the same way the arrow had first entered, then placed the screw in the centre, and finally the tongs entered the socket of the arrowhead. Then by moving it to and fro little by little, with the help of God, I extracted the arrowhead. I suggest there's a good chance that the results of Henry's encounter with the arrow were not pretty, and that it left him with a pretty grim scar, or mess, on one side of his face, hence the portrait in profile. Anywho, Prince Henry's counterattack took him straight through Percy's line, and having gone through, they turned round, and suddenly the tables were turned. From being hunter, Hotspur was hunted. Cometh the hour, Douglas grabbed Hotspur in the heat of the fight and persuaded him to make one more throw of the dice. Saddle up, couch lances, and drive straight at the standard, and Henry kill him, and the battle was over. Hotspur, Douglas, and Thirty Knight set their lances and started the charge. Dunbar saw the danger and forced Henry to back away from the line as the heavily armed knights crashed into the line and the weight of their charge took them through the first people. Behind Henry, Walter Blount, dressed in the king's livery and the king's standard, went down under the charge. But the attack had inevitably slowed in the press of men. From Hotspur's line, seeing Blount fall, the cry went up, King Henry is dead! Henry Percy, king! But in fact, the opposite was true. 
In front of Henry, Hotspur was cut down as the charge had slowed. So Henry pushed up his visor and yelled, Henry, Percy is dead! And now the end really had arrived. Hotspur lay dead. Douglas was captured yet again. Interestingly, I'm told by the Oxford Dictionary of National Biography that Douglas had in the process lost a testicle, which you have to say was either very careless or extremely clever of him, but a good deal better than losing two testicles. Anyway, the heart went out of Percy's army and the slaughter began. The job, of course, was far from over. Douglas was to spend the next six years in rather luxurious imprisonment. Worcester had a harder fate. He'd rolled the dice and had come up craps. On the 23rd of July, he was allowed to see Hotspur's body propped up on an axe laid between two millstones, and we're told that he wept. Then he was summarily beheaded as a traitor and his head stuck over London Bridge. The head of the snake as yet remained in place. Henry Percy, Earl of Northumberland, head of the family. The king sent a note ahead to the Percy's deadly rival in the north, Ralph Neville, Earl of Westmoreland, and told him to apprehend Northumberland and then set off north. When Henry arrived in York, Northumberland had disbanded any men he had under arms, shadowed as he was by Westmoreland, and was skulking in his rather magnificent castle at Walkworth which a few years ago I visited with my family during a really rather fantastic medieval festival type of thing and thoroughly loved. As we sat on the grass and watched things going on, my heart full of delight, my daughter turned to me and said, Dad, this is the saddest thing I've ever seen. We share much in common, my girl and I, but a love of medieval history isn't one of them. Hey-ho, Northumberland meekly answered Henry's summons to York. Northumberland was now 72 years old and through his life he had totally transformed the fortunes of the Percy family, turning them from just one of many significant players on the northern borders to the family that dominated the Eastern March, held an earldom and was a player in national politics. His life had been marked by success after success, but maybe that very success was now his biggest challenge. He'd overreached himself. As he rode under the gatehouse into York to see the king, he would have seen the severed head of his son nailed there as a reminder of that failure and the danger that he was now in. The trouble for Henry was that he couldn't actually prove that Northumberland was also a traitor, and Northumberland subjected himself suitably and denied everything. The following year he was allowed to address Parliament and made the same claims, and in the end he survived. He was fined, but he survived but in his heart, Northumberland had not reconciled him to the sight of his son's severed head nailed to the gatehouse at York like a common criminal. So look, you might think that having put down a dangerous rebellion, Henry could kick back a bit, bask in some glory and stop worrying for a while. But not a bit of it. Through 1403 and 1404, things just get worse for Henry and the crown weighs ever heavier on his head. It's Glyndua that was largely responsible. Wales was a cauldron of panic and rumour. Glyndua was in the east of Hereford, it was said. Glyndua was in the north. Glyndua was in the southwest at Carmarthen and was going to attack the castle there. Glyndua was going to attack Harlech. And in July, Glyndua was in fact at Carmarthen. And in July, Carmarthen had fallen while Henry was dealing with Hotspur. And meanwhile, the letters poured into the king. Glyndua was going to attack Hereford. 
and the local gentry would make their peace to protect their lands so come and save us. So in September, Henry again found himself leading a campaign into Wales, this time to Carmarthen. And once again, Glyndua melted away as he approached. This was not the time to take and hold. But that time was coming, and coming soon. Following the pattern of his three other campaigns, within a few weeks Henry was back in England. Now the thing about Edward I and his strategy to subdue Wales was his use of the sea to support and resupply his armies and castles. Of course, we focus on the castles, and yes, that's the big surviving face of the conquest, but it's no coincidence that the biggest and most famous, Carnarvon, Harlech, Beaumaris, Conwy, were all on the sea. Henry and the English were to find out that without control of the sea, those castles were dangerously isolated. Now at this time, the sea was something of a bone of contention between the English and the French. Not an official war for the large part, but a war by proxy, a war of piracy. At the base of this war of piracy was some maths. As you may or may not know, there was a time when the English kings maintained a fleet of galleys and could nip over to the continent at will, Richard the Lionheart specifically. And in fact, we didn't give old Richard enough credit since as far as the navy was concerned, Richard was the most active king in setting a clear policy, including building the facilities at Portsmouth, than any other king until Henry V. Anyway, back to that mass. The trouble was that ships were cripplingly expensive. In English terms, the cost of running a galley was about 760 quid a year, and then you had to add all the building and the maintenance costs together, and it meant that running a royal fleet of just 20 galleys could cost you 50,000 quid. This was clearly completely insupportable, well over half of Henry IV's total income. Hmm, so what to do? The whole sink ports thing had seemed to be the answer, privileges for a series of towns in return for making their ships available. But then all the sink ports produced only 57 ships, and a fleet to take an army to France could be 250 to 300 ships large. And anyway, the sink ports don't actually seem to have provided such large numbers very frequently. So the next answer was impressment. You will provide a ship at naffle pay and you will do it, because if you don't, I will pummel you until you do normal medieval rule. But despite the normal patriotic fervour stuff, that left, that left the medieval king a little exposed to the question, tell me why I'm giving you these boats again? There's a lovely story about a chap called Thomas of Gargrave. Thomas's job had been in 1281 to go and impress ships into the royal service. So he'd started off at Shoreham and he found nine out of ten ships in port and duly impressed them. Yahoy. By the time he left Shoreham, there was a small army of patriotic citizens travelling along the coast in front of him, and by the time he reached Southampton, there were only two out of 30 ships in port, and he'd have to bet the masters of those two ships had the most god-awful hangover that day to have been caught in port. Really, there wasn't much in royal service for the ship's masters. And so the only available answer lay in piracy, it had been traditional for the Crown to have a large share in any ships taken as prizes, in fact the whole value of any ships taken in royal service. But since royal fleets were now in fact simply in the main achieved by pressing merchantmen into service without any payment, this didn't seem terribly fair. So by the 14th century, prize money tended to be divided one quarter to the king, 
one quarter to the owners and a half to the crew. But in 1400, in Henry's campaign to Scotland, all of the prize money was allowed to the ships, and by 1440, there is a standard emerging. The owners get a third, the master gets a sixth, and the rest goes to the crew. So English ships get issued with a sort of licence that allows them to go and make war, and in later centuries, these are referred to as letters of mark. In theory, they are licences to go and make good the losses the owner has incurred from piracy from the other side, but generally, no one was counting and telling them when to stop. And so at last, you had a good reason for people to take part. A nice example is one John Hawley, a citizen of Dartmouth. Hawley was a pirate by any other name. His ships roved the channel between 1379 and 1388, picking up pretty much whatever he could find. Now you might expect him to be the subject of some angry letters from the Crown, a remonstrance from Parliament written in the strongest possible terms. But not a bit of it. He was part of the fleet that took Richard II to France in 1389. He was mayor of Dartmouth no less than 14 times during his life. And for a while he was even made admiral of the fleet by Henry IV under the Earl of Worcester. In the end, even Henry was forced to take note of the rising tide of complaints from Hawley's victims, which began to include Flemings, Italians and Spaniards, whom the king didn't want to annoy. And so this led to a six-month stay in the Tower of London for Hawley. But despite this, Hawley's experience showed you could get fat on the proceeds of state-sponsored piracy. So, back to the main story. When Glendower raised the flag of rebellion, the French could see a good thing when they saw it. And meanwhile, anyway, the French were determined to disrupt English trade and operated exactly the same policy as the English in terms of piracy, though they had a bit more money to hire Castilian galleys to help the war effort. Operating from Harfleur, French pirates were the scourge of English trade, and the Bretons from Saint-Paul were almost as bad. In 1403, Plymouth was raided and burned. Raids were launched less successfully on the Isle of Wight. And then in late 1403, they began to show signs of operating more actively in favour of Glyndewa's cause. And so on the 29th of September 1403, the constable of Kidwelly Castle in South Wales wrote to the king. Henry Doon and all the rebels of South Wales, with the men of France and Brittany, are coming towards the castle and the town of Kidwelly with all their ordnance, and have destroyed the grain belonging to your poor lieges of every side of your said castle and town. And many of your poor commons have fled into England with their wives and children, and the others are in your said castle in doubt of their lives. Here in this short communication is some of the reality of the revolt in Wales for the English. Suddenly they were alone in a sea of unfriendly faces never sure when Glyndwr and his allies were going to strike in their direction. The terror of running for the safety of the castle, leaving whatever they couldn't carry to be burned, and while some gave up altogether and headed back to England where they could be safe. And meanwhile the growing alliance against the English oppressor, men like Harry Doon, local Unshawir, turned against his previous overlords, the French operating from the sea in the Channel. Now this particular attack failed, but in November, the French tried again, and this time attacking Carnarvon on the northwest coast, so now nowhere on the coast was safe. So when Henry met his Parliament in January 1404, he might have felt he had a cast-iron, open-and-shut, honest-to-goodness case for lots of lolly and taxation, and that it would just be a doddle. After all, Wales was clearly under siege. 
but not a bit of it. Henry's troubles were really just beginning. Next week, then, we'll talk about the best year yet for Glyndwr and his freedom fighters and hear how Henry, poor lamb, gets an idea of the way parliaments of the future are going to go for him. Thanks for donators this week to regulars Janita, Robert, Matthew, Philip and Cathy. Special thanks. To Dane, Deborah and Richard. Go on, Richard. Go and see Evesham. Go this weekend and then you can hold your head up high. And also thanks to everyone who comments on the website or iTunes or joins the Facebook group. And indeed to all of you for listening. Good luck all and have a great week. <laughs>